Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined by my friend Larry Chap. It's been just about a month since you were last on, Larry, so it's time for yes. our monthly conversation. Welcome back to Creedle. I am thrilled to be back. I always love uh, my discussions with you. Likewise. No, I always enjoy our, our time together, and I learn something every time. Hopefully, my listeners and viewers do as well. So tell me, how are things on the uh, Dorothy Day Worker Farm in Scranton, Pennsylvania? Uh, kind of slow right now uh, because of covid uh, we didn't plant any crops this year because we rely heavily on volunteers uh, to help us with the weeding. Uh, you know, normally we'd plant two or three acres of produce, vegetables, potatoes, and uh, but we have to have volunteers to help us weed. And because of COVID, all the faith-based groups and so on that would come and help us have dried up, and we're continuing to dry up. So we didn't plant anything this year. Instead, we're just focusing on our sheep, which is a central part of what we do. My wife. You know, shears the sheep, spins the wool, processes the wool, spins it, and then teaches people how to uh, to to do that. Um, so that's become a, a central focus for us right now, as well as always visitors that that come and we we engage in what Dorothy Day called hospitality, and we pray with them in our chapel, and um, that's so. But things are kind of quiet there right now. I've really gotten quite busy with all of my writing, not just my blog, but now I'm writing books for Word on Fire, Ignatius Press. Uh, apparently, people want to hear what I have to say for some strange reason. and So now I'm, I'm sort of in full-on writing mode, more than farming mode, but things continue. Well, I refer my listeners and viewers to our previous discussion where we talked a little bit more about some of what you do on the farm uh, and the life of Dorothy Day. It was a really good conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we were just talking before I hit the record button about uh, maybe my uh, potential, potentially getting out there sometime this fall to Pennsylvania. And if I do, I'll be sure to swing by and check out the farm and, and visit with you in person for the first time, which would be great. Absolutely. Are you a bourbon drinker? We could, we could, we could have uh, a bourbon. I am. Bourbon is my whiskey of choice for sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mine too. All right. Great. Yeah. I, I knew I liked you, Larry. <laughs> All right. So today, uh, today I wanted to have you on the show because not, not only is it time for our monthly discussion, but we also have seen quite a lot of developments in the Catholic world since the last time we did have a discussion. Uh, and foremost among those probably would be the, uh, the issuing of this motu proprio uh, apostolic letter from Pope Francis um, that, uh, that basically suppresses the extraordinary form of the Mass. Not entirely, but severely uh, restricts it, the, the times and places in which it can be celebrated. Um, and abrogates, perhaps most significantly, all the norms promulgated by Benedict XVI, and John Paul II. So this is this is a bombshell in in the Catholic world, and and particularly in the trad Catholic world, uh, which we have talked a lot about. Yes. Uh, so l let me first just get your your first reactions to uh, to the letter that was issued, and then we'll um, maybe go through some of the points piece by piece and explain what's what's all in this letter and what we should make of it. Uh, my my first reaction is that is the irony contained in the title, Traditiones Custodes, the the guardian of tradition, wherein the Pope. Uh, decides to favor a 50-year-old liturgy over a 1,500-year-old liturgy, all in the name of guarding the tradition. So I, I, I'm not saying that to criticize the Pope, but I, I think there's a bit of irony there contained yeah. right in the title. Uh, but I also think it's a tip-off that the, the, the Pope is saying something here, which is that the guardian of the tradition is the magisterium of the church, and the pontiff is the supreme magisterium of that church. And contrary to what some people have said, like Cardinal Burke, uh, who essentially insinuate that the Pope have, has no authority to cancel, if you will, this ancient liturgy of the Church, I think Pope Francis is right in, in saying, yes, I do. The Pope does have the final say over whatever liturgical form is, is going to be in the Church, no matter how ancient it might be, and no matter how imprudent it might be for him for him to do that. But I, I, Ed Peters, the canonist, uh, wrote in the pillar just yesterday uh, that he too doesn't think that Burke is correct, that he thinks that the Pope does in fact have the right and the power to do this. But that's a separate question from whether or not he should have. And my opinion is that he should not have, with certain, with certain caveats. Uh, and the main reason I don't think he should have is, is, is kind of, I don't think the problem was as big as, as the Pope claims, you know, all this radical dissent from Vatican II 
and the Novus Ordo, although that element is there, and we have to talk about that. Um, there was certainly an undercurrent of that in, in TLM parishes, but I, I know enough people in those parishes to know that I don't think it's the necessarily the dominant motif, although I could be wrong about that, and some say that I am. Uh, but but, but the, the fact is, as my friend Christopher Eltieri at the Catholic Herald has said, it's, it's like cutting off your hand because you have a hangnail. It's, it's, it seems drastic to me. It's and, using a, perhaps using a guillotine when you could use a scalpel. Well, yeah, you know, and it's like shooting flies with a bazooka. And, and I just don't understand the harshness of it. It seems forensic, legalistic, harsh, yeah. oh, and, 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 and a blunt instrument. And, and so I, I criticize it for that because this is a pope who rightly emphasizes the need for Christians to engage in what he calls accompaniment, uh, for, for Christians to reach out to those on the margins, those who are hurting, those who might feel alienated from the church, and to walk with them and minister to them and talk to them. But there's certainly no accompaniment here. There's certainly no dialogue here. Uh, he polled some bishops and said, what do you think about this? But he never really had a conversation with the traditionalists themselves, right. which, which I think he should have. Instead of having a synod on the Amazon, why not have a synod on the liturgy where People of all kinds are invited to, to come to Rome and have a frank discussion about the state of, of the Catholic liturgy with all parties involved, and then to issue an apostolic exhortation after that synod and say, here's what we're going to do after consultation and dialogue. But no, this is a heavily top-down decision from a pope who claims he wants to decentralize the papacy and, and a more synodal church and, and not have Rome make all of these decisions, and yet here he is. And so there's something going on here. Insofar as Pope Francis is, in a sense, gone against his own better instincts, gone against his talking about accompaniment and synodality, and just sort of, boom, put the hammer down, there's yeah. something more going on here. And uh, I'm going to steel man the Pope's the Pope's position here, instead of throwing Molotov cocktails at him. Yeah, and, before, before you do that, Larry, can I just read through what's in here, and then I'll sure. ask you to kind of steal man, and we can talk about it a little sure. bit more. So I'm looking at the text of the Moda Proprio itself. This was accompanied, as you know, by a letter from the Pope to his brother bishops, in which he explained more of his thinking on this, but the real meat of it is in the Moda Proprio apostolic letter itself. Yeah. Uh, Article 2 or, I'm sorry, Article 1 declares the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II, uh, we know them as the Novus Ordo, are the, quote, unique expression of the Lex Orandi of the Roman Rite. So he is excluding from that the 1962 Missal that contains the traditional Latin Mass. Article 2 says it belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular church entrusted to him to regulate the liturgical celebrations of his diocese. Therefore, it is his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 Roman Missal in his diocese according to the guidelines of the Apostolic See. So, I mean, I think so far, well, maybe Article 1 is sort of strange in that it says that the unique expression of the Roman Rite is the Novus Ordo. Uh, but Article yeah. 2, all, all that does is say it belongs, basically the bishop is yeah. competent to determine what, uh, what liturgical celebrations are used in his diocese. I think, fair enough. Um, Article 3 says... Uh, the bishop of the diocese that has traditional Latin mass groups in which there now exist one or more groups that celebrate according to the missile antecedent to the reform of 1970. And then it has these, these various steps. So one determined that they do not, that they're not schismatics, essentially that they do not, that they do not deny the validity and the legitimacy of the liturgical reform uh, and the magisterium of the Supreme Pontiffs. Number two, that bishop is supposed to designate one or more locations where the faithful adherence of these groups may gather for Eucharistic celebration, but then it has this interesting parenthetical note that says, not, however, in the parochial churches yeah. and without the erection of new personal parishes. So presumably the uh, the Pope here is envisioning the construction, or not 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 literal construction, but the sort of establishment of um, of, of chapels in which these uh, traditional Latin Mass celebrations can be held. Um, number three, to establish at the designated locations the days on which Eucharistic celebrations are permitted using the 1962 Missal. Uh, and in these celebrations, the readings have to be proclaimed in the vernacular. So in America, they have to be, be uh, proclaimed in, uh, in English, English, or you can envision perhaps a, a Spanish mass or Spanish readings sure. in a Spanish-speaking sure. area. Um, number four, to appoint a priest who, as delegate of the bishop, is entrusted with these celebrations and with the pastoral care of these groups of the faithful, 
Uh, so the bishop then should appoint a singular priest in his diocese who is responsible for the pastoral care of the adherents of the traditional Latin Mass. And then uh, this art, this uh, rubric goes on to say that this priest needs to be familiar with the Latin Mass, possess a knowledge of Latin sufficient to do it correctly, etc. So that's all good. Uh, and then uh, number five, the bishop should proceed suitably to verify that the parishes canonically erected for the benefit of these faithful are effective for their spiritual growth and to determine whether or not to retain them. And item six, to take care not to authorize the establishment of new groups. Um, and, and that, I think, is very interesting because he's, he's uh, disallowing the erection of new parishes or new um, fraternities, perhaps, that are focused on the traditional Latin Mass. Um, yes. and, then, and then we're in the, back to the articles. So those were the responsibilities of the bishops in which there are TLM parishes in their diocese. And then article four, priests that are ordained... From here on out, so after the date of this motu proprio, which is, I think, July 16th? Yes, 16 July, 2021. Uh, Anyone ordained after then has to then get approval from the diocesan bishop to request permission, authorization to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass. And then the bishop has to then consult with the Vatican before granting that faculty. Uh, Article 5 requires priests who already celebrate the traditional Latin Mass to request from their bishop the authorization to continue uh, to enjoy the faculty. Uh, Article 6 says that institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life erected by the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei fall under the competence of the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies for Apostolic Life. And then Article 7, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments and the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and societies of apostolic life for matters of their particular competence exercise the authority of the Holy See with respect to the observance of these provisions. So Articles 6 and 7 are are administrative. And then Article 8, previous norms, instructions, permissions, and customs that do not conform to the provisions of the present motu proprio are abrogated. This would include the work of St. John Paul II and Benedict Benedict XVI, allowing for and in many respects encouraging the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Um, And so that is essentially what's in the motu proprio. So uh, Larry, I interrupted you when you were going to steel man the Pope's position here, so maybe you can do that now. But before you do, I will also say this is obviously a pro-successor of Peter podcast, and says so we're, uh, you know, to the extent that we sound critical of the Pope, um, we are we are praying for the Pope every day, as every Catholic should, sure. and the Pope the Pope is the vicar of Christ, and the Pope is the successor of Peter, and none of that is uh, is up for debate, and none of that is even at stake here. Um, but but go ahead, Larry. With that said, let's steel man the Pope's position. I think that the, what the Pope has uh, in his directly in his like I said, there's more going. This this uh, motu proprio says more than it says, and and what I think that the the deeper point that the Pope is making is that the liturgy has to be a source of unity in the church and not a source of disunity. He emphasized that theme of unity. Now, my before I steal man his argument, one of my big problems with the motu proprio is I don't think it's going to achieve that end. I think it's it's simply going to kick up more disunity and, and more animosity and a certain resentment and anger in a certain subsection of the church where, where I think dialogue and accompaniment might have been better served. That said, I think what the Pope is deeply concerned about, and rightly so, is that there are there is a strong, strong element within the traditional Latin mass community that weaponized the Mass against the Novus Ordo and had very, very disparaging things to say about the Second Vatican Council. Uh, I, I know personally some of the, you know, not personally, personally, but through social media, some of the leading, you know, lights of the traditional Latin Mass movement in the United States, and all they do is trash Vatican II. All they do is trash the Novus Ordo and set up the the traditional Latin Mass as the be-all and end-all of Catholic liturgy, and and someday it will make its comeback, and the Novus Ordo will die, a, a, you know, a, a happy death, and will be rid of it. So there's and and I so I've, I'm not completely buying the argument that I hear from so many TLM people uh, that you know, though that's uh, that's a fringe element of the TLM uh, community. Uh, I know a lot of people in the TLM community, and they're not like that. But I, I hear from a lot of people who say that they are. Furthermore, I know from personal experience on my blog that you write anything against the traditionalist movement, and out of the woodwork comes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people 
calling you a heretic and uh, hate mail and so on. Go on Facebook and post anything, all right, uh, on the Novus Ordo or Vatican II or Hansuus von Balthasar, dare we hope that all are saved and so on. Or, 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 or you know, Robert Barron, Bishop Barron isn't even orthodox enough for them. He's a, he's a pink, pink Catholic. And, and so, I, you know, after a while you begin to realize, wait a minute, if every single traditionalist voice I run across on social media is of this kind, then I have to start wondering if what I've been told, that the TLM communities are not like this, is not true. That there is a strong, and I think to steel man the Pope's argument, I think he's deeply, deeply concerned about that. And I think that's what he heard from a lot of bishops uh, in the poll that I think the poll should be made public so that everything is transparent, uh, maybe keeping the names of the bishops anonymous, but publishing their comments and opinions. Uh, and and I really, really think that that was his chief aim. I think it's very clear in his mind that the path forward is that of the liturgical reform instituted by Vatican II. Mass in the vernacular, emphasis on scripture, and so on, and the, the, the path forward is not Mass in Latin. And, you know, on that point, I agree with him. I mean, I attend an Anglican ordinariate parish because I, I think the liturgy is beautiful, and I have certain issues of my own with the Novus Ordo. Nonetheless, I love to pray in English. I love to pray in my mother tongue. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, and we would have Novus Ordo Masses in Latin, and I remember how much I hated them uh, because I didn't, I didn't know Latin well enough then to, to pray it properly and so on. And then the TLM people will say, well, you can get a missile and it's got a translation. Well, then you're not, pray then you're not really following in Latin then, are you? You're, you're reading in the vernacular. So why not just have the mass in the vernacular if, if that's the case? Um, but anyway, I think that's what the Pope had in mind. Uh, I, I think it was a draconian uh, move on his part to do it and the way that he did. And I think after you read off all of those stipulations in the motu proprio, I'm not going to go through each one. We'd be here all day, but I think it's very clear that they're all designed to slowly choke the traditional Latin Mass to death. Through a, instead of just banning the Latin Mass outright, which he could have done, uh, I think he simply wants it to die of atrophy, uh, of neglect. And so he has severely restricted where and when it can be said and by whom. And, and I think he's hoping that over time it will sort of pull the rug out from underneath the feet of this groundswell, apparently, of traditional Latin Mass people. A groundswell, by the way, that I'm not certain is actually there. I think in some places it is, like France, I'm told. Uh, but one of the things you hear from traditional Latin Mass people is that, oh, it's growing, all these churches are full, and so on. Well, that's because there aren't that many Latin Mass parishes, and so the people that are attracted to the Latin Mass, all go to these few parishes, and so they get this illusion of, oh, it's full churches, and so on. But it's a drop in the bucket. The vast, vast, vast majority of Catholics in this country do not want to worship in Latin. They don't, and they're never going to want to worship in Latin. And, and I think the TLM people need to get over it. Yeah, so I have a couple of comments just to respond to what you said. I think you're spot on uh, in every respect. I agree with everything. I will say that I do actually appreciate Francis's insistence that where it is celebrated, the readings of the of scripture be in the vernacular. Absolutely, because because the point of the point of scripture is for us to encounter God's word. I uh, my family and I went to a Latin mass once, and we you know arrived late because we have four kids, and that's what we do more often than not unfortunately and uh and we so we sat in the back and the priest was was saying the mass and was very very quiet of course facing the altar but almost whispering the entire mass and so it was very hard for us to figure out even where we were uh, and i was thinking you know when he when he does the readings i'll at least know there they were at the readings but no we blew through the readings all in latin still facing the yeah. uh, still facing the altar and so i was just like oh that that already happened okay why why would we do that you know the the readings are for us to hear and, yes. and to be attentive to. And how can we do that if we have no idea what's being said? Um, so I do appreciate that Francis is saying, if you're, if you're going to do it, at least do the, for the readings in vernacular, because people need to hear scripture. People need to encounter the, the divine word of God. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, I also, I agree with you that I think um, Pope Francis is trying to um, suppress what he understands to be a schismatic element within the Catholic Church today. And I think there is a 
a grain of truth there. So, you know, I, I'm not denying that a scalpel was indeed needed. Uh, I just think that the measure, as you said, was too draconian yeah. to deal with a problem as it is. Um, I know many, many Catholics personally who attend Latin mass parishes, and these Catholics are, they're, they're, they're the Catholics who are faithfully praying the prayers of the church, who are, who, who I think would, who, who, I mean, who place more faith in the church and more faith in Jesus Christ than probably a lot of, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill Novus Ordo Catholics um, yeah. are. And so these people are very, very faithful, and to address them as people who are schismatic does them a grave disservice. And it makes me wonder who is advising Francis on this. Ah. And I think, I think that your point about sort of the, the dynamics of sort of online interactions is really important, right? Because our online interactions shape so much of how we perceive the world around us, unfortunately. Absolutely. And so Francis's advisors who tend to be more theologically progressive than not, are often the target and receive the online ire of all of those traditionalist Catholics, some of whom, and maybe the loudest of whom, are sort of schismatic or semi-schismatic, or always talking about how the Novus Ordo is full of heresy, or et cetera, right? And so in their view then, the people who are giving them the most grief, the people who are making the loudest noises are the ones who are indeed semi-schismatic. And so it ends up being this, um, this echo chamber that doesn't actually cohere with reality as it is. Uh, but it, it presents, it presents a false perception of the TLM adherence across the world, but really concentrated in the United States. And, and I think we have to acknowledge this, this letter is probably primarily focused at the United States. Um, and the French which, and the French. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are a couple, I think there are quite a few English TLM parishes too, um, I could be wrong about that, but it's it's generally it's ge- definitely like a sort of continental and American and North American phenomenon, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and so, so I think that unfortunately, the advisors of Francis maybe maybe I'm giving them too much credit. Maybe they know that this is a wrong perception, and they're just sort of angling to get it done anyway. But I, the most charitable impression is I think that they have a wrong impression of what the TLM communities are like based on their sort of online interactions or the, the most visible interactions that they've had, the most vocal ones, the most disturbing ones with some of the most rabid adherents. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, I've, I've blogged before about uh, that there could be some bad things coming down the road because of the appointment into the Vatican high office of people like Cardinal Supic, Cardinal Tobin of Newark, uh, Cardinal Farrell had already been appointed there. These are well-known progressives uh, no friends of the traditional Latin mass movement, no, no friends of, of conservative uh, Catholicism. But, and, but these are the folks who go to Rome who yes. have Francis's ear and say, yes. you know, yes. your holiness, this is what the church is like in America. And there's a reason why Francis chose them to go to Rome, because he too shares, I think, some of their progressive views yeah. about things. And by the way, not just about the liturgy, but also about politics. I think one of the things, too, that is lost in this debate about the motu proprio is the extent to which some of the leading internet lights of the traditionalist movement were huge Trump supporters and almost yeah. conflating the Catholic faith with Trumpism. I mean, look at Taylor Marshall. For, uh, he was on Trump's team for a while on his campaign. I mean, I, he, yeah, he was like leading prayers around. And there's Archbishop, the, the Archbishop Lunatic Vigano out there pushing all kinds of crazy conspiracy nonsense about Great Reset and, and, and Donald Trump is our savior and blah, blah, blah. And, and don't think that didn't catch the notice of people totally. in, in, in Rome as well. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 the, and, and I mean, honestly, not unfairly, Larry. I mean, that's, oh, that's, no. the, that's the worst of it, right? But, but that, that's the thing. So the, the Pope yeah. has surrounded himself with, with these more progressive prelates. Fine, that, that's his right. I'm, I'm not happy with those appointments, yeah. as I have said before. But I do believe that he's getting advice about the American church through the lens of prelates who he attru- who trusts. And, but it's a thoroughly progressive lens. And what they're saying to him is, Holy Father, this traditional Latin mass movement in the United States is bad news. It's reactionary alt-right politics. It's hatred of Vatican II and all things modern. I mean, and there, there's a certain, tr- like I said, I mean, there's Taylor Marshall out there selling Vigano t-shirts. Uh, and one of the leading lights of the traditional Latin mass movement here in the United States a theologian by the name of, of Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, who's written all kinds of books on the traditional Latin Mass, uh, contributed an essay in a book that accused Pope Francis of heresy. 
uh, you know, and, and, and Peter Kwasniewski sent me a copy of this book, and, and I've read big chunks of it, and it's, there are a few essays here and there that are more reasonable in the book, and I think that's just is tokenism on their part, so they can say, look, we had other voices. But 85 to 90 percent of the voices in that book are all calling Pope Francis a heretic. I mean, a formal heretic. And, yeah. and okay, so here's Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, one of the leading lights of the traditionalist movement in the United States, contributing chapter to a book on, on heresy, uh, the Pope is a heretic, and running around saying that the Novus Ordo is horrible and Vatican II is stupid. And, and then, they, then they sit back and wonder, well, wait a minute, what's happened here? How dare they say that we stand for these things when they have public stands saying that they stand for these things? Yeah. And so then you've got Supic and Tobin and Farrell and, and James Martin and all these guys in the Vatican whispering in the Pope's ear, and saying, look, they're calling you a heretic. They're calling Vatican II heretical. They're trashing the Novus Ordo. I don't understand how they couldn't see that this was going to light a fire under this pope and, and, and have him come down. So in some sense, the blame for this, and there, there is blame to be made, has to reside with the saner elements of the traditional Latin mass movement in the United States. For example, the FSSP. Those priests who do, the, I know some of them, and they're good men, all right? And one of them just came out last week blasting Taylor Marshall and his rhetoric for having created conditions that sort of caused yeah. this. Well, my attitude is, where were you two years ago? Where were you three years ago? Okay, when there's Taylor Marshall in his book Infiltration saying essentially Pope Francis is a false pope, a heretic, a Freemason, and so on. All right, and, and, and equating all that with the Latin mass movement, where was the FSSP people three years ago, four years ago? They should, the, the traditionalist movement, the leaders of it who were sane, should have called out the others and repudiated them and told them to be quiet. I'll, I'll give you an example here. It, you know, I attend an Anglican ordinariate parish. And the ordinariate, of course, is filled with all kinds of very traditional people. And the, the liturgy is high liturgy. They're, they're beautiful liturgy. Yeah, yeah, and so on. But, you know, I know for a fact that Bishop Lopes, who is the bishop of the ordinariate, doesn't put up with any of that garbage. There was a priest in the ordinariate who was preaching that kind of stuff in a single parish somewhere, and Bishop Lopes canned him immediately. And so we're not going to have any of that, all right? And and we don't. The or, You don't see any of that that undercurrent in the ordinariate where they say our liturgy is superior to the Novus Ordo, so let's trash yeah. the Novus Ordo and right. horrible Vatican II. There's none of that in the ordinariate, and that's why the Moda Proprio didn't ban the ordinariate liturgy. I have traditional and mass friends of mine on Facebook always saying, to look out, the ordinariate's going to be next, so watch how you right. criticize. No, I don't think so. I don't think so yeah, at all. Yeah, that's because it's 2007, I think, Benedict's Anglicanorum Shedibus basically established the Anglican yes. right, essentially, right? Yeah. So, and so the thinking from your people like your friends is, well, this is what Francis can do to Samorum Pontificum, which was the sort of equivalent from Benedict allowing yeah. for the traditional Latin mass, then he could do the same thing to Anglicanorum Chetibus. But you're right. Uh, we don't see the same sort of rhetoric coming from Anglican ordinary folks. I think they're just they're grateful to be sort of refugees in the uh, the ecclesiastical from the ecclesiastical disaster of you know early 2000s Anglicanism. That's the word grateful. I have not met an ordinariate priest or a person in the ordinariate who are converts, you know, from Anglicanism or whatever, who isn't yeah. just deeply, deeply grateful to have found a home in the Catholic Church. Uh, and and the traditional Latin Mass people should have had similar gratitude. My goodness, they even started. Many of them even started to turn on Pope Benedict, who they should have bowed down on their knees to and, and, and thanked him profusely and then went off to their Latin masses and kept their mouths shut about, yeah. you know, about everything else and it simply appreciated the beauty of that liturgy and, and, and the, the graciousness of Pope Benedict for having allowed it. I know I'm being very critical of the traditionalists here, but I, I'm trying to, in a sense, show the complexity of this issue. So much of the commentary that's out there is either one side or the other. You know, mm -hmm. the traditional Latin mass is just stupid, and these are all reactionaries, and of course they should do away with it, and the Pope was entirely correct. And on the other side, oh, the Pope's, the Pope's a heretic, and he's showing his true colors, and this is horrible. And so there needs to be more nuance in these discussions as to what led to this crisis in the first place. And that is where I am most critical of 
Tradiciones Custodes. I think I know where you're going with this, and I love it, so go ahead. And, and, and that is this. He wrote a letter to the bishops yeah. explaining his rationale. I think he should have included a, a much longer letter as well that would have been an, a, a, what I call in my blog a sort of searing and piercing pastoral analysis of the failures of the church for the past 50 years to provide people with the spiritual nourishment that they so crave uh, and, and haven't gotten and that is the soil in which this discontent arose, which caused people then to be seeking out these spiritual and liturgical alternatives in droves. Yep. All right, Most people simply have left the church over the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, the church is hemorrhaging people because it, its message no longer inspires them. It's not evangelical enough, eschatological enough. It's not hard-hitting enough. It doesn't inspire anybody. And, and so they're hemorrhaging those people. And those who didn't want to hemorrhage and leave went off to the traditional Latin Mass uh, and, and, and found a home there. I think the Pope should have done, uh, like I said, maybe a synod or written an encyclical about here's, here's the spiritual ill of the church over the past yeah. 50 years. Here is our culpability in causing these great pockets of discontent. And here's how we're going we're, we're gonna to fix liturgical implementation. We're going to do it right. Well, yeah, you know, and uh, in one sense, too, I have to say with regard to Pope Benedict, who I love, uh, I, I, he, it's very clear that he, he granted all these permissions to the Latin Mass because he loves the Latin Mass, and he wanted it to cross-fertilize the Novus Ordo in order maybe to add something to the Novus Ordo that was lacking, and sort of fuse the, t the two things together, which I think is what he thought should have happened after the council. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's all well and good. But the cross-fertilization did not take place because many, 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 many bishops and priests in Novus Ordo parishes want no part of that. Yeah, it's, it's a one-way street, right? One-way street. And many of the traditionalists want no part of the Novus Ordo or helping to reform mm -hmm. it. So what happened was they just split into camps. So I think what Pope Benedict probably should have done, uh, as well as allowing for a wider use of the traditional Latin Mass, which I still think should be allowed, um, I think he should have engaged in liturgical reform of the Novus Ordo. I, I think he should have set up a committee that says, okay, we, we need to re-examine where we are, you know, 50 years after the Novus Ordo and whether or not it doesn't need to have a certain embellishment to it. Maybe we should have worship ad orientum. Always. You know, yeah. Maybe we should have altar rails and receiving communion on the tongue while kneeling. Maybe we really yeah. should have more Gregorian chant or just plain chant in English, more incense, more sacred hymns. And so maybe we should have all of that. And so I don't understand why he didn't try to institute something in that direction. Um, and in that sense, what he did create, and I think Pope Francis is correct, is simply sort of two parallel paths within the church right. rather than a cross-fertilization, which is what he wanted, I think. Uh, so it's it's an enormously complex ecclesiological issue right now. It's a hot mess. And, and I have sympathies with both sides of the debate, as you can tell by I'm sort of I'm sort of all over the map here. I, I feel for my traditionalist friends because I think it's unfair what has happened. Uh, on the other hand, they are greatly to blame for the for the perception that is out there of what it is that they stand for. Yeah, I I would have been less disappointed at the motu proprio. Uh, I mean, I, I would have been disappointed with the suppression as it is anyway. But I would have been less disappointed if the motu proprio had also included specific instructions for not having these liturgical abuses right. at the Novus Ordo masses. Yeah. And so um, the, the letter, like you mentioned, the letter sort of gives a nod to that on in two, two different places uh, where Pope Francis writes um, at the, so he, he describes sort of how it's been 13 years since Benedict's Samorum Pontificum. And then he says, we did a survey. The responses reveal a situation that preoccupies and saddens me because we have this sort of two camps but then he says, at the same time, I am saddened by abuses in the celebration of the liturgy on all sides. In common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that, quote, in many places the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for, or even a requirement of creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions. And this is, of course, where you get like the sparkling champagne masses and 
you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that felt banners are a distortion of the, you know, following the rubrics, but they're certainly a distortion of the spirit of the rubrics if you, if you uh, catch my drift. Yeah. And then at the very end, Francis says, um, so he says, like, you know, these are your, your directions that I'm giving you in the mode proprio regarding the TLM. And then he says, at the same time, and this is, of course, not covered in the mode proprio, I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II without the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses. Seminarians and new priests should be formed in the faithful observance of the, of the prescriptions of the Missal and liturgical books in which is reflected the liturgical form willed by Vatican Council II. So it's only in the, in the letter, the accompanying letter. It's really a pastoral letter to his brother bishops. It's not in the actual instructions of the mode proprio. So I think it will end up getting overlooked, but there's, there's at least an acknowledgement that that's, that's a significant problem, right? Yeah, the question is whether or not he's just paying lip service to, yeah. to, to, in a sense, quell some criticism from the traditional Latin Mass people saying, okay, well, then make sure that the Novus Ordo is, is going to be prayed properly. And so, yeah, I mean, let's, let's do another mode proprio so, next month, uh, and we'll do the same well, thing. Well, I think, actually, then, what he should have done in this mode proprio as well is to combine uh, the, the, the strictures, the new strictures of the traditional Latin Mass with, with a lot more rules and specificity with what those eccentricities and abuses are that he has in yeah. mind with regard to the Novus Ordo. He needs to specify those as well and say, I as Pope hereby forbid the following practices. And I, yes. and I order the bishops to be sure that these practices are not going on. In, in Like, for example, having lay people preach homilies. Yep. That that's a fairly common thing in a lot of more liberal dioceses and so forth. Why not for repeat the you know that's still on the books as you're not allowed to do that. So why doesn't the Pope specifically mention things like lay people cannot cannot preach the homily, uh, and, and and then there are other abuses too, like introducing non-gendered language. Uh, I know a priest at my local Novus Ordo parish that com completely neutered everything in the Eucharistic prayer and so on. Oh my goodness, in the Eucharistic prayer itself, oh, wow. Oh yeah, and and so, you know, that's the sort of thing that should have maybe been specified in the mode proprio, saying, you know, we you have to pray the words as written, you don't get to make stuff up, and I'd use stronger language, but the Pope would never use yeah. my stronger language, you don't just get to make stuff up. All right, you, right. you need to, and I sort of, I, I order priests and bishops to ensure that the, that the rubrics are followed you know, meticulously that the prayers, say the black do the red, right? Yeah, and the prayers are prayed as written, uh, mm -hmm. and there are no stupid abuses like lay people preaching the homily, or you know, uh, having or it, like daily masses with small attendants having the lay people come up around the altar, all right, and hold out their hands like they're co-consecrating, yeah. which which yep. happens in some parishes. That's the kind of That's nonsense terrible. that drives people insane. Who have yeah. any sense at all? Now, I will say one more thing too, with regard to the the Latin Mass. I've been sort of critical of the traditionalists, but one of the groups in the traditionalist movement that I feel most sorry for are families. And I think this is something, like I said, what's not in the emoto proprio and should have been there is this searing pastoral analysis of what has gone wrong over the past fifty or sixty years that drives people into this. And I don't want to be too atomized and individualistic in my understanding of people who are driven away. What what has been driven away are families, because modern Catholic families who want to re, re, keep their children Catholic, and a lot of these Latin Mass families are large families, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine yeah, kids, sure. right? They drive the 15-passenger vans uh, up to Mass. Oh, and... I know, we've got some in the ordinary as well, Home, yeah. homeschooling families and so yeah. on, because they want to keep their kids Catholic, and they realize that we live in a cultural septic tank. Yeah. And when they go to Novus Ordo parishes or typical Catholic schools, even though there might be a veneer of orthodoxy and no even great abuses, they're surrounded by Catholics that basically think think along the lines of our culture, see no problem with the septic tank. And, and, and these parents are saying, we have to find a faith community within the ambit of the Catholic Church that shares our values so that we can have a community of like-minded people to help us raise our children. Uh, and and I think that should have been addressed in, in, in a profound way. There are now a lot of hurting families out there saying, what mm -hmm. are we going to do now? Uh, yeah. Because my local Novus Ordo parish is crazy, and I, and I don't want my kids associating 
in, in, with people in that environment. Now, the, the, totally. Uh, yeah. These are not puritanical Catholic Amish. These are people who are sane, who have a head on their shoulders, who understand the cultural crisis that is at hand, and they want no part of it. And they turn to the Novus Ordo Parish, and, and they don't find any acknowledgement that there's a crisis, any acknowledgement that the suburban bourgeois existence in which we're enmeshed in, in consumerist corporate America, is, is, is antithetical to the Catholic faith. Yeah. And, and this is something the Pope should, all popes should be addressing, and especially this yeah. one. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. I think it is sad, and it's really it's really sad, saddening to see a pope who emphasizes encounter so much and accompaniment. Yeah, um, you know, being so harsh with these these families who are trying their best to be faithful Catholics and are trying to do what's right for their families in an age of complete cultural chaos and confusion, like you've said, um, yeah. it's it's really really difficult. I I really wonder what the future will be like for. You know, what, what the outcome will be will, will be from this because like you I question the wisdom of it I think um, you know if, if if you have this group that is saying that uh, you know you are a heretic and you're, you're Pope Francis you understand that these groups are saying that you're a heretic um, you know one way to make them really confirmed in their suspicion of your heresy is to do you know is to sort of cast them out right and say that they can't they can't have this mass anymore that's been used in the church for 1500 years Um and I, I, I certainly am not calling Francis a heretic, but he's confirming, he's confirming the prior opinions of himself in the minds of those people, and so he's sort of exacerbating the situation in that way. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, like like we just said, he's not cracking down on the abuses that drove many of those people away in the first place. I mean, yeah. uh, we we've we've been we've been you know we travel um, to see family and and go here and there across the country, and we pop into parishes for daily mass, and there have been times where we just don't receive because we're like, was I don't know. Was this a validly confected Eucharist? I'm not. I'm not convinced well, yeah, based on absolutely. based on what we just saw, right? So we just sort of sit in the pew and pray and um, and make an act of spiritual communion and then pray for the church. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's those types of things that drive you to a place where people take the liturgy seriously because this is the source and the summit of our Christian life. And so, um, you know, I've had mixed experiences in traditional Latin masses. You know, I went to one. It was an FSSP parish, and it was actually hilarious. Uh, we were in there with our family, and there were other families there. But as soon as our youngest made a noise, uh, the priest at the front reminded everyone that there was a cry room. So we were like, okay, I guess that's us. We better go to the cry room. So we go to the cry room. Uh, where my, my wife does. I stay behind with our other kids. And then there's a sign in the cry room that says, if your baby's crying, uh, it says, like, the cry room is for children who are who are, who are relatively quiet or something. If your baby is crying, please take them to the basement. <laughs> so, um, wow. you know, our baby cried again. So my wife had to take him to the basement and it was just a mess. We we're like, well, that's not very family friendly. We're not going back. I don't mean to, ca- to paint a broad brush that that's how every parish is. But, um, th- you know, what I have noticed at a traditional Latin mass is that everyone there is reverent. Uh, yes. It is clear to everyone. It is believed by everyone that something is happening at the altar, that God is doing something. Uh, that the Eucharist is, in fact, the body and blood of Christ. That is not the case at, you know, the vast majority of Novus Ordo parishes that I go to. And it's, so it's not surprising that these people try to flee to a place that has that understanding and, and has that respect for and, and reverence of the Eucharist. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And like, like, like I said, so I, I have a hat in, in both camps to an extent. My sympathies yeah. lie with the traditionalists because they are, they are seeking the sacred, in a church that has studiously neglected the sacred for 50 or 60 years. They're seeking the supernatural in a church that has gone hyper-naturalistic and horizontal over the past 50 or 60 years. And so the church has dropped the ball in their regard, and and there should have been a a greater pastoral outreach to them uh, rather than this this smackdown that came. Uh, On the other hand, as I've said, uh, there are some... There are some deep problems in in the traditionalist movement, and uh, I just I just w- I just wish there had been more alternatives. Anyway, my wife is texting me right now. If you heard any dinging, that that's... <laughs> sounds good. It's dinner time. Yeah. Um, well, I've got. Well, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I I, I do appreciate your time, and and we're no, I don't have time, to but... go. I don't have to go. Oh, okay. Uh, no, not okay. at all. Not at all. I was just right. warning your viewers if you're getting multiple dings here. I didn't turn off my my phone, and it's. Dinging away from my wife. No worries. No worries at all. Um, well, I mean, we're, we are almost out of time, but I did have another question. Sure. Um, just want to get your thoughts on this. So uh, the pillar Catholic 
uh, guys who you already referenced the pillar once in this conversation, yeah. JD Flynn and Ed Condon, both professionally trained as canon lawyers. JD has served as a uh, chancellor for a diocese under our Archbishop um, Chaput when he was in Denver. Um, so, and obviously as Catholic journalists, these folks are very well connected. Um, and they did a, a podcast discussion about this, which I thought was very helpful. It was, it was sort of late breaking. And so they were really responding in the moment, but they talked about, you know, how, how now shall we live for, for those who are adherents of the traditional Latin mass? Um, how do you respond? And uh, I thought their response was very measured. And they basically said, you know, take, you know, be obedient to the vicar of Christ, be obedient to the Pope, but take this as an opportunity to grow in holiness. And so, and so pray through this, be obedient to the Pope, but pray through this, that, that God will bring good out of it. On the other hand, uh, as you've already mentioned, I've seen uh, friends who are adherents of the traditional Latin mass on social media say, this is a time for resisting Peter to his face, um, uh, which is a reference to, to scripture when Peter was wrong uh, in, an debate with, in a debate with Paul. Um, and uh, I don't think that's the answer because I think obedience to the vicar of Christ is called for. The mass is not totally suppressed, so it's not like you can never go to a traditional Latin mass. It will largely True. depend on your diocese and your, your bishop's permissions and what he authorizes because it is, in fact, he is, in fact, the ordinary of the diocese in which he presides. Um, but so, I don't know, just uh, I, I guess I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts and sort of how, how a faithful Catholic should respond to something like this, a, a very disappointing um, and, and uh, perhaps we could even say imprudent decision by uh, the vicar of Christ. Well, I, I think that, yeah, it, it puts these people in a hard place, the traditional Latin Mass people. On the other hand, your, your faith is in the Church, in Christ, and in the sacraments. It's not mm-hmm. in a particular liturgical form. And, and if you think your faith is going to fall apart, or your family is going to fall apart, simply because a certain liturgical form has been disallowed to you, conveniently anyway, let's say there's no convenient now mass for you to go to, then I think then you have to sit back and frankly acknowledge that maybe there's there's something out of skew here. Uh, it, is, it is to be remembered, despite the spiritual deficiencies of many of our suburban parishes in particular, the Novus Ordo liturgy is the liturgy that Mother Teresa prayed, that St. John Paul II prayed. It, it is, it's, the, it's the liturgy that Dorothy Day prayed in, in the later Mm-hmm. stages of her life. It is a liturgy that has sustained millions and millions of faithful people. And and it is simply not true that you cannot find sanctity or Christ in, in a Novus Ordo parish. It might be harder now. All right. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is to go to your Novus Ordo parish and start identifying those people within the parish who do think like you. And, and to form, uh, you know, Bible study groups or theology study groups or prayer groups where you meet in each other's homes or with the pastor's permission in the church basement, uh, uh, you know, and, and have fellowship on that level to support one another. Uh, it's, 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 you know, for all of my ranting and raving about, you know, beige Catholicism, as Barron calls it, and the spiritual desert that so many of our Novus Ordo parishes are, uh, we don't also want to do a scorched earth analysis that says, well, it's just all desert. There's nothing there. There's a lot there. There is a lot there. And that has to be remembered. The sacraments are still there. The sacramentals that you can still practice at home with your family are still there. And uh, I, I would just say you've just got to soldier on. You know, I, you know, before I discovered the ordinariate here five or six years ago, whenever it was, I've attended Novus Ordo my entire life. And I'm going to use an example here of something. I'm a little off topic. We might be running out of time, but I, I think this, no, is, before, this yeah. is important. When I was a freshman in college, I was at the University of Nebraska. And uh, I was already thinking of exploring my vocation to, to go. I went to seminary. I, mm-hmm. I started attending a Newman Center on the campus of the University of Nebraska, one of the most vibrant, spiritually alive experiences of a parish in my entire life. It's, it remains wow. one of the leading Newman centers in the country. Really? That's so cool. In fact, Amazing. in fact, that Newman center was so vibrant. The year I went to the seminary in 1978, 25 guys went with me, most of whom what? came from the Newman center in a tiny little diocese oh of maybe yeah. 90,000 Catholics, the diocese of Lincoln, right? Was generating these massive numbers of vocations largely because, largely because of that Newman Center churning them out. Mm -hmm. Now, my point is this, what mass did we have there? Novus Ordo. And Mm -hmm. what form did it take? 
guitar masses, St. Louis Jesuits. Okay, yeah. it was all the bells and windows, uh, whistles of late seventies Novus Ordo. Now it wasn't crazy; yeah. it was orthodox. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You, we weren't consecrating popcorn and Coca Cola. Yeah. There were no clown masses, no liturgical dancers, none of that nonsense. It was all very orthodox, but the music was folk music, St. Louis Jesuits, Novus Ordo, and guess what? Mm -hmm. It still inspired us because Christ was there, the Eucharist was there, and the faith yeah. life of the community was there. All right, so the Novus Ordo can inspire. You need the right priest. And this, this to me is, is critical, that if you now are feeling lost because your Latin Mass is gone, this is controversial. I'm going to say a controversial thing here, but it's something I've said before. Okay. I don't feel obligated to my territorial parish. I'm going to go and find a parish that has a priest that gets it. It's a Novus Ordo parish, but there's lots of them out there with priests who get it. Okay, Go to that priest. Go to that church. Now I know I get I always get emails from people saying, "No, you got to stay and fight in your territorial parish." That hogwash. Yeah, I don't I don't agree with that at all. Now maybe I'm violating some canon law or something. I I I don't know, but that's my view. You have to put your family first. So go and find a Novus Ordo priest who's got it. Yeah, it's good advice. I mean, I think I might have shared with you before that when we moved here to Colorado Springs, the first thing we did. Uh, after we determined that I would accept the job and move here, the first thing we did was look for a parish that we want to go to. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the case of our parish, I called up the parish office and talked to the priest to make sure it was the kind of parish we'd want to be at. And then we, we basically focused our, our house, our search for houses around the parish so that we'd make sure that we were at least close to that. Yeah. I, I totally agree with your point about, you know, you don't have to be bound to your territory or parish. You need to do um, what is best for your family and you need to be close to Jesus in the blessed sacrament. Um, yes. and you need to be fed spiritually. Uh, you know, the, the, the parish thing was more a function of necessity when people didn't have right. motor vehicles. Right. right. <laughs> so exactly. you'd go to the parish in your town because that's what you could walk to or ride a horse to. Um, we don't have those restrictions anymore. And so we need to be more intentional about choosing the parishes for our families that will. Well, too, us. in the old immigrant days too, you know, urban centers, Irish and Italian immigrants, yeah. the, the parishes served as a focal point of community. And, sure. and so you wanted people going to their territorial parish in order to establish the bonds of, of a community in your local area. The, the thing is, though, with, with the rise of suburban Catholicism and yeah. and, and automobiles well, and, and, and all yeah. that. Well, just the, the shrinking of the church, too. And the right? shrinking well, of the church have, and the mainstreaming yeah. of immigrants. The, the, the fact of the matter is a lot of parishes just don't function as the hub of a community anymore. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, it really isn't. And uh, so I say seek out those parishes that can form those bonds of community with you because it's filled with like-minded people. Yeah. All right, well, that's a good note to end on. I will also say, before we do end, pray for the Pope, pray for your bishops, pray for your yes. priests. They need our prayers. Um, and, uh, you know, if, the, if you disagree with uh, the Pope or any member of the uh, church's hierarchy, the best thing you can do is pray for them. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, moves how he will. Uh, but they need our prayers. So, uh, Larry, thanks so much for joining me. It was great discussion. I uh, loved it. Looking forward to next time as well. Uh, hope the uh, time on the farm goes well. I'll ask you for more updates next time we chat. Okay, will do. Thank you. To my listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Creedal. Uh, if you uh, haven't already, please give me a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps reach more listeners. Or subscribe on YouTube where this is also posted. Uh, and also go check out Larry's blog. He blogs, as you are all well aware, at gaudium at spes22.com. He's written some really good things and appeared in another podcast talking about traditionis custodis, um, the topic for today's discussion. So I encourage you to go check out his work, give him a read, and maybe give him a listen or a watch on some other places that he's appeared. Uh, but Larry, thanks so much for your time. Thank to you. our listeners, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at credalpodcast.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Uh, and until next time, God bless you. Thank you.